Today's guest is Brian Stevens, CEO of Neuromagic. We have the opportunity to listen to the leadership of a team that is currently making what we know to be large language models and vision models accessible at an enterprise level that isn't going to require massive infrastructure to have it running. They've optimized CPUs to be able to run these models and to be tailored, fine-tuned, if you will, I think is the correct term, for any enterprise's needs. And this comes directly as a consequence of Brian's time as CTO and, uh, and developing product over at Google Cloud and Red Hat. So when you add that weight into who's leading the show here and having come across uh, a dear friend of his near, uh, who was a part of the founding team of Neural Magic, right? Uh, that was founded at MIT, you start to get a clearer picture for what's going on, if you will, uh, sort of tapping into these open source models and, and pushing the envelope forward and making it more accessible and ultimately democratizing things. You know, so we cover sort of that journey. We, we discuss what Neuromagic is trying to accomplish. And then we even go into what people should be looking at in terms of what's needed in the industry as a whole, which is really on the applied side. Right. And we even touch on maybe some things people should consider as there's currently a lot of nerves around like career development for people and where should they go and what should they be studying. And, you know, suffice it to say, uh, Brian says, like, start now, don't study for three years for something and, you know, just dive right into it. So without further ado, Brian Stevens of Neural Magic. The place I'd love to start is as follows, right? You've been able to take what is open source and create a business around that in a way that not only supports the growth of the open source community and its products and services, but also sets free a lot of enterprises and businesses that would otherwise find it prohibitively expensive to be in business. And so you have this background of like, you know, Google Cloud and Red Hat, which is like, wow. And then we're talking, and so I can pin it here. We're also talking about securing blue chip investment, right? For mm -hmm. your current venture with Neuromagic. So I want to I wanna sort of wrap my head around this. And I think one way that we can really tap into the magic of that is, what is your earliest memory of working with computers? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, definitely back in high school. Um, can't, I'm not going to tell you my age, but they did have computers. <laughs> they did have computers back then, barely. But you know what it was? Was you know there wasn't like a dedication around uh, programming as a as a curriculum. And what it was was, but in math it was highly relevant for programming in support of math classes. So it was just really getting introduced um, in math class to the point where I just thought it was like recess. It was just the first experience I had on the programming side, it was just, it wasn't just a learning, it was just joy because you were found yourself like really quickly creating it to the point where two years later, I remember when you had to sit with the guidance counselor and you were making plans. My, I had already figured out my career plan. My career plan was I was going to be a carpenter. I even knew the kind of vehicle I was going to have with all my carpentry equipment in it. And it was, it was set what color it was. And, um, and my guidance counselor said no. And I was like, I mean, I was like, I was devastated. And, and I'm like, well, I have zero other interests career-wise. And he's like, well, you really like programming. And I'm like, I just didn't know that could be a career. He was like, and so, so, you know, back in the 80s, you know, like everything was just getting rock and roll and then university. And um, I just ran to it. And it was just such a fun uh, a fun experience because you know it wasn't an insular experience even back then. You talk about like open source being collaborative, but even back then, um, we were kind of programming together. Maybe that's because of lack of you know computer resources. So you were you're doing it with your friends, and it was just a blast. You know, it was just a really creative, fun time. Um, the fact that you could have a whole career based on software development, I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought it would have ran its course, but and here we are in the world of AI, and it's. I guess it's just as relevant today as it was back then. No, man, it's 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 insane what's taken place from then. And it's so cool to hear what that was like because, you know, I'm 89 when I was born and I remember the floppy disks and the hard yeah, disk yeah. that came shortly after 
I remember web TV was around for a while that most people yeah. weren't hip to at the time. You know, that was really my experience. Um, so it, it really is a shocker to see where we are today. And, yeah. and before we continue to push forward here, I just want to tap into it, your days as CTO um, with, uh, with uh, Google or Red Hat, either one that you want to tap into here. Uh, what was that entrance like for you, knowing that that was where you had decided, wow, this could be a thing, to then working for some yeah. of the biggest names in yeah. tech? What was that experience like for you? And do you find that it's suited you well for your next venture? Because it sounds like the, when you do things, you do them at a scale of massive change. You're a change maker, just the way that you run things based on where you've been in terms of the notes that I saw. Did you go in knowing that or is it the proverbial, I had no idea I was going to change the world. I just knew that I wanted yeah. to. I think I, I think I've always had a really good perspective on like as, you know, like computer software developers often work for companies that are selling stuff. And a lot of software developers are working on a project, but they don't necessarily take an interest or a fascination with what it's for. And I just, even as a, like a really early software developer of, you know, Digital Equipment Corporation in, in Massachusetts, I didn't want to just work on algorithms. I wanted to kind of know like who was using those and was it going to, was it going to mean anything? And so, so I kind of had this weird, unusual side of a programmer back then that I was kind of, I guess, part product manager, part program, you know, software developer. But like, um, there was kind of this transition, but through that, I, I was always really empathetic of like our end users, right? And so I never believed in the, just throw software at them and then they should thank you and pay you, right? I always wanted to know like, well, what's their challenge though? How easy was it for them to use it, deploy it? And, and so I really spent a lot of time, you know, with customers. So I became a software developer, but I was always very outbound, always meeting with, with clients and, you know, CTOs often do that as well right um but the but i think like the the reddit thing wasn't i don't know if it was i, I can't give myself credit that it was a vision i call it an observation um that um you know prior to being at red hat i was in the land like the whole world of enterprise it was proprietary really expensive hardware made by sun and ibm and hp and then each of us had our own proprietary operating system called Unix, and that ran the world of server IT. Microsoft wasn't there yet. They were on the desktop. And, um, and that was the world we're in. And that's all I knew at this 200,000-person company at DEC. And then, and then along in the labs, we started to use more Intel hardware. And we're using it more as a front end to drive load on a database so we could like build this big backend database that was faster and more capable than anybody else's Oracle database. And I'm looking at these little Intel front ends that were doing this simulated database transactions on it. And every like six months, we'd throw them out and buy new ones because they were cheaper. And these were just the desktop, the desktop PCs back then. And then, um, and they, of course, the only thing that ran on desktop PCs was Microsoft. And then a little while later, it was like, we could tell Microsoft was too slow. So we replaced it with Linux. And then because Linux was open, we then started making modifications to Linux to make it have multiple concurrent threads to run on this thing. So I'm sitting here in a company that's selling $100,000 computer equipment servers. And I'm looking at these little PCs from Intel. I'm like, that's the future. It's like that commoditization is going to drive it. And none of the big vendors are going to get behind it because it's just too disruptive for a company to say, we're not going to sell this $100,000 thing. We're going to sell this open thing that's going to cost a fraction of the cost and be more powerful. And so I just dawned on me like only Microsoft was going to win because to them, entering server IT was an expansion of their business, not a disruption. And HP, IBM, you know, Digital Sun were never going to embrace open source and Linux and Intel. And so, so I left and you know um, focused on making Linux enterprise ready, which it was long ways from being enterprise ready, but directionally right. So it really was just an observation of like, this would be a far better future for end users. And then, and then the rest was really just like making it be so, you know, like executing and hiring great people and, and being really customer centric and building the technology they need and building a subscription model, I think was perhaps the biggest innovation there. Absolutely. Because I didn't, we didn't want a model where like, we're giving them licensed software because what that does is it means engineers are like the company's dependent on a 
release is coming because that's the revenue event. And if you can get out of that rhythm, and again, it didn't exist back then. If you get out of that rhythm of, of license being the economic basis of the company, then you start just building things that your customers need and you care about continuity and compatibility and all of those things that matter. So what if they'd already paid for the next version before they even had it? And then you're just focused on like everything that they need and making it be a non-event and enabling all the things that they don't have that they need, new hardware, et cetera. And so kind of the, all those things kind of coming together at the same time, a better, a better relationship model with enterprise bring them capability to have commoditizing the stack, open collaboration. I mean, this wasn't right. It was 200 people back then, you know, but it was the world was developing Linux, you know, and just think of like that shared innovation that went into it. So I was in the right place at the right time, lucky and, you know, and hopefully help them execute to, you know, the great company that they still are. I'm so glad you shared the thinking behind the kinds of decisions you were making back then and the observations that you came across, uh, because I think it sets a solid groundwork for sort of the sentiment and the DNA of what neuromagic is moving, right? And, and moving forward. And especially when we combine it with, you know, you loved like woodworking, right? So there's this non-digital, non-tech aspect, but still very computational in its craft, right? Of getting something Creative. created. Look at exactly. the build stuff. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And then you just did that digitally and shifted over, right, uh, into the world today, which I believe also positions you and the company and the team to have that sort of spirit of empathy for end users across the board. Because my question I'm about to ask is, do you feel like the definition of enterprise has changed from then to today in modern day in terms of... Oh, business? that's interesting. That's interesting. I think it has... Um, Especially around, well, I will say just because open source has enabled them to be a participant rather than just somebody that's sold to, right? Like the, um, and that was true, not just a red out of Google, you know, as we kind of shifted um, to more open source technologies, you know, all the things, you know, this kind of modernizes cloud native apps and made them open source. It really allowed enterprises that, at least enterprises that looked at technology as a strategic enabler, it allowed them to participate. And not necessarily just through like joining the development, but they but they actually um, were able to be more creative and provide better feedback um, because it wasn't opaque. And and I think um, you know, I know I know we're gonna talk about AI today. I don't see why that's any different. You know, like I think like um AI is arguably much more important to them than even an open source operating system was back in the day, right? Um, but but man, allowing them to be a participant in that open innovation isn't just going to make have better results for them. It's going to bring value back to the ecosystem of of generative AI. Absolutely, and sort of in the spirit of what you just mentioned, moving into that direction with Neuromagic right now. This is, uh, my notes told me that this was started in MIT and then there's this blank void between then and then you uh -huh. leading the ship. How did this occur? Were you a part of that original founding group? What's the sort of story there? No, I was, um, I had moved out to... Um, uh, California for when, you know, when I joined Google in 2014 and I was out there for my first three years running product. And then my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so like, I didn't want to like, I wanted to be in New Hampshire, you know, five miles away. And so, so I moved back, stayed, stayed with, um, you know, stayed with Google, um, but worked remotely for, for a couple of years. Um, but after that, in 2019, I actually felt like um, I felt really good about like you know, open source and Red Hat and you know, all these people I had the opportunity to work with and where their careers were headed and and hopefully how I helped them and you know their next chapter. That I actually had a different plan, you know, when I came back, you know, beyond being you know helping with the caregiving of my dad and and that was just to um, have a different chapter. So um, and that chapter was going to be. Um, 
you know, repaying some technical debt that I bestowed upon my wife and family over those years when you're really busy building companies, right? We all do it. And um, so that was in my plan. Um, you know, still jo- you know, joined a couple of boards. Um, so I still wanted to have like, you know, be, I, I still have that part that I have to be involved, just don't have to be involved in a hundred hours a week. Um, but then like the, um, you know, um, you know, I, I would go down and work with a couple of the Boston based VCs every now and then on a Monday and just fun, like no commitment, help them with diligence, meet new companies, meet new founders. And then, um, I met near, um, through that process. Um, and near was the MIT professor that's just, you know, I know it has, has really written the book on, you know, multi-core computing, the efficiency, and you can't make, and there's a blurred line between software and hardware when you're making systems efficient. And so he's an expert on that. And then later he got into, you know, cognitive and, you know, where I, AI meets efficient representations on top of hardware. And um, all that aside, like, yeah, that's cool. It's technology. And I had already started all the AI services at Google, but I fell in love with him. Cause he's just like such an interesting person and such a really nice man that I found like I love spending time with him and just, you know, uh, whether we were talking AI or whether we were talking anything else. And, um, and so the, 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 the way the MIT spinouts work is, um, you know, the founding professor, you know, after a couple of years has to go back and at least teach one class kind of thing. I'm sure there's other details of it. That, so they, so they knew originally like near would be CEO for two years. So they were looking for a CEO right out of the gate. That wasn't going to be me. That was not my plan. Um, but I left spending time. So I committed the day a week and I'd go down and hang out with them in Somerville and, and, and help them. And then, um, and then COVID hit. And um, I had been writing code every day, like finally using like to be, product officer for Google, defining all the products, but never having the time to use them. So I actually had a, like a little thorny problem that I wanted to build for. And so I wrote some stuff on using every Google Cloud service, which was a blast. I mean, music playing, having a great time. And then, um, but then increasingly I saw that amount of time getting squeezed out and I was spending more time with Nier and the Neural Magic team because just the AI side the open source side of AI was just really getting rocking and rolling. And, you know, a few years ago, and it was just fascinating. And so I just fell in love with, I fell in love with the team. I fell in love with like learning the technology, how fast it was innovating. And then, and then I really fell in love with like what it could be. Like, you know, if open source could like really enable these companies the same way enable them at the infrastructure level, that'd be really amazing. And if I thought if I could help with that in any small way, then yeah, uh, you know, I want to be a part of that. Absolutely. And if we could dive right into it, what are some use cases that I think maybe aren't as readily apparent in how AI and, and these uh, models in open source communities could begin to find themselves applied in everyday running of business. Yeah. I think like the, if we went back pre-November 2022, you know, if we went back before, you know, circa chat GPT, it was typically in two arenas, right? One was vision, you know, and vision been happening for years. Um, And um, in most of the cases in vision was either classification, you know, what is that? And that might be true in retail. Um, manufacturing, um, obviously security, um, and then and then and then also then like like and then with self driving like object detection and you know um, so vision was pretty robust um, and most of the vision use cases were at the edge, meaning you weren't trying to take a picture of something in the data center and figure out what it was. You know you were doing this out in the real world on devices and cameras, um, and then the other sort of side of it. And so the other sort of side of AI was typically natural language processing. And then the, the leading um, model implementations came out of Google, um, started the whole Transformers model called BERT. And, and what enterprises typically did with them, companies typically did with them was 
offline. So meaning not real-time interacting with users, but more, um, I'm going to summarize this document. I'm going to go look at these uh, customer call logs and I'm going to do sentiment analysis on, are they mostly happy? And if they're most, if they're, when they're unhappy, what are they unhappy about? What object, you know, what entities? So it was kind of like these offline processing and getting, you know, um, intelligence out of data, but not in kind of real time. And and that was just, that's where we were a year ago. 100%. No, that was definitely the 80-20 rule. You know, like that, those use cases were everything. Um, but even then, like the, everybody was exploring, all companies were exploring with AI in some form. I'd argue very few had put it in production at, at any kind of scale or any kind of beyond vision, you know, that had an impact on their business. And then, and then as soon as, you know, um, you know, chat GPT, it just changed everything, you know, it changed, um, use cases changed. They became real time. They became, you know, it was the ushering in of generative at the, at least from the large language model side, as much as we thought stable diffusion was amazing. Like nobody even talked about it once, you know, chat GPT was out. Yeah. Right. And so it's just the notion of like the creativity and the efficiency you could gain um through these you know generative text use cases was amazing and i think people saw them really quickly so it's definitely changed um it's definitely ushered in a greater sense of urgency on behalf of companies to either become more efficient enable their products or not get eaten up by ai yeah and most businesses, because what I want to get to now is something that I think is really interesting that Neuromagic is doing in particular. And that is, and I'm trying to find a way to make this accessible to as many people as possible, right? Because sure, if you're talking to people only in tech and you tell them, hey, we're looking to optimize CPUs to be able to run right. these, right. Uh, these yeah. models, it's like, sure. And wow, that's amazing, right? You say that anywhere outside of that. And it's like, there's the conundrum. Okay. Yeah. So does my computer have that? They don't even know if their computer has a CPU half the time, right? Yeah. So therein lies the question because those are the people that we want ultimately to be accessing this type of technology right. to continue right. to innovate from the bottom up, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. therein lies the challenge. And what are some of the things that you've come across as a team uh, to sort of look at? Like, here's maybe ways that we can look into that? Because we could dive into like, what does the optimization process look like? Is it running through a software interface? What's going on? Before we even get there, because those people can be patient and they can wait, have you discussed this problem openly yet? Just in terms of like, can we provide this kind of models at an affordable way to car washes to determine whether or not, uh, you know, uh, the car was actually clean after it came out of the car wash? I don't know. I'm just hypothetically thinking yeah. about here. Yeah, I think like it's still early, to be honest, because um, and like one of the public boards I'm on, you know, runs a lot of like uh, back office businesses that are outsourced, you know, to them. And they're immediately um, looking at hundreds and hundreds of use cases across everywhere, everywhere from uh, supply chain issues, uh, you know, managing supply chain, uh, managing, um, you know, quote to cash, managing, you know, anything that any large enterprise has to deal with. You're seeing large language model use cases fit in. And a lot of it is really around um, um, some of the, the classical cases are obviously the, you know, um, human to software system interface. Right. It's kind of probably the most natural one that we all think of. It's the way that we interact with ChatGPT as we ask questions. Um, the difference is that I think um, if you take the, and that's kind of the chat tailored version of, of these models, which is great. The, the, the difference is, is that while that capability, if I kind of summarize it today, is really consumer grade, yeah. um, meaning like it definitely probably satisfies 90% of what consumers are looking for. Modulo um, not being current. Like, I still want to know the score. Like, I was thinking, you know, anyway, so in the prediction of who's going to, are the Patriots going to like 
get the top draft pick this year. Like how another, but but I think like the what we're seeing is the missing part is it's not good enough for companies to have like consumer grade kind of versions of of chat models. Um, you know, like if you're in the if you're in the medical business, right? Like there's um, it's not good enough to not have the specificity around the data that's specific to somebody that's in medical insurance, right? Um, and so what happens is, is um, you know, these models are created and they're all powerful, but where companies are, the journey companies are on are two things. One is what's that use case I want to apply to? And, and many of those are, like you said, is, is, is question and answering, right? Give me an answer to a question. But the step that most companies have to go through is how do they, you know, tailor that model? Not recreate a whole new model, but how do they tailor that model to understand them and their business and their data set? And so that's, I'd argue the like equal amount of innovations going into that right now to making that easy and more accurate um, so that it really understands you. Um, so, I mean, would you really want like a call, you know, chat, you know, support line, right? Same model to be used for all businesses, of course not, right? And you want it to understand your ontology. And so that really brings in like a fine tuning process that has to happen for all the companies. And then like, you know, I maybe, you, I don't, how, how many of us even use, like when that chat dialogue pops up, I, you run. Like how quickly, <laughs> can you, how quickly can you exit off, right? Absolutely. But imagine, imagine if it like really understood who you were, like it added your account, it knew you were, already knew you were having an issue, knew what the issue was about, like it knew you didn't have access. Like all these are the art of the possible. If the industry gets away from the one big model is going to serve everybody versus thousands and thousands of smaller, more efficient models that are more fit to task. Right. And I think that's where it needs to head. The, this stage that we're in right now is kind of a demo. I love this because most people who do see, seek out and find these alternatives, and I say it in air quotes because they are usually just a front facing front end that's running the same GPT-4 model through an API yeah. or what have you, or one yeah. of the other similar models as opposed to a model that has been, like, as you said, fine tuned tailored specifically with all the context, which is the term most people are using these days, for specifically right. your business. If you were an author, imagine a model that had only all of your books and how it relates with the subject. Like, and it's just purely Completely. for you, right? Um, for the health insurance companies, imagine being able to have a tailored model for each customer oh, in completely. their network. This is, what we're, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. The implication, yeah. yes? Yeah, and you can... And you can as much as it took um, massive amounts of computer infrastructure, you know, millions of dollars of computer infrastructure to build, you know, these open source foundational models, um, you can you can fine tune these in for a couple hundred dollars, right? Um, you know, in small number of hours on small number of GPUs, you know, in cloud. So it really is. We're not talking about like. So I think that's kind of like the mindset is like, yeah, but like we can't like go build us. A multi-million dollar model. Right. What happens is because then you would be like, well, is the value there to, you know, is the ROI there? Is enough value the ROI is there? So, but as you start to drive the cost down to fine-tune these models to where it's near epsilon, then it doesn't, even if you get a little bit of value out of them for certain use case, you're going to go that route. And I think, and it's okay that we're early because it's really the the open source equivalents of you know the chat gpt models didn't even start to exist till nine nine ish months ago eight months ago right like so it's really we haven't even been a year yet and so they're 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 you know getting better and better and they'll get they'll get more efficient along the way um so it's natu natural that we don't know how to fine tune them so what happens instead is which is kind of ironic is what we instead what the industry's been doing is take this one generic model and try to teach it about yourself every time you 
you ask a question. Oh my God. Just think about like the burning cycles and processing. Like, okay, let's tell it who I am again. Let's tell it who I am prompt again. But the reality, engineering. <laughs> yeah, it's prompt engineering, rag engineering. They're all fun. And I think they'll they'll always exist, but I think they'll coexist, quite honestly, with a more adapted, a more adapted model that that meets a company or individual user's needs. And the subject matter expertise and people's ability to communicate really does currently determine how much access and use and usefulness someone can get right. out of this generic model. And that in itself is another obstacle, right? And right. I correct me if this analogy is wrong, because the way I'm hearing it is like people are seeing it as like, oh, can I really have my own model in the same way where people who develop applications need a really, really powerful computer, but then they can package it into this really small package that works on your phone, even though there's no way you could build that on your phone. Is that sort of the same analogy? It, it is. And then, and then, and that's where this is all hidden. We had a, a proof of concept request, you know, come in yesterday, which is, you know, wanting a large language model on an Android phone. Like, and I'm like, and, and <laughs> but in the past though, there was always vision, you know, it was always vision, but now all of a sudden back to that use case question, you know, you're even seeing this isn't like a consumer application, it's a business application, you know, but the notion of like, you know, Android having like large language models, isn't that kind of like ironic? Yeah. But the reality is, no, you actually can do it like with the right optimizations because the, the, the nature of these, even though the models have exploded to be a hundred X bigger, a thousand X bigger. And that was part of the breakthrough, right? That, the you know, OpenAI is credited with us. They went a direction that the industry said going in that direction doesn't just mean spending more money. It actually will end up with a with something that's not good. And and they went that direction anyway, and they're right, right? And so that was that was pretty clear. But the result and effect is these models are now a hundred to a thousand times bigger than they were a year ago. Right. And so the but what I think people don't realize and that I didn't realize and so it got me excited to the early MIT kind of technology that fed the company was the um just like the brain, right? Your brain's got petabytes of information, but the power of a cell phone, right? And so yeah, it's still better than these models are. And so the notion, the the comparison, the analogy is the is you get in these large language models that have 7 billion, 70 billion, 700 billion parameters, a very small percentage of them are the ones that really matter, which is kind of funny. So they're all there and they're all trained and modified during the training process. But the trick and, you know, the credit to Nier and the founding team was they figured out how to reduce the parameters in these large models, right, down to the only the ones that mattered. So now if all of a sudden you can reduce the parameters and we, 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 through, you know, sparsity, we turn those parameters to zeros. Right. And so that's kind of, um, but if you can eliminate 90% plus of those parameters in the model still have the same performance, meaning performance in this case, the accuracy and the capability of the model, you've just all of a sudden not just made it run faster, you've enabled it to run in places, you know, that it never could have before. So, so the realization of running these models um, on phones and laptops and cameras is not just feasible, it's the future, right? It definitely is a reality. And, and I think the future will mean like all models will be created this way. Right now, like the industry just creates these heavyweight models and runs on heavyweight on really expensive GPUs. But I think just like with Red Hat and open source, the future will be more efficient hardware to run these things on, whether those are GPUs or CPUs or variants there in between. Why wouldn't you run the most efficient model possible? Right? Like why would you, if it's just as good, right? Like you just wouldn't do it any other way. You're spending too much money. It's not green, slower. Um, there's every reason in the world why it's wrong. It's just that the capability of sparsity is so early in the industry that so few people understand that. And that's why we've taken the path that we truly are open source and open research and publishing that research and capabilities. So I, I think down the road, anytime you see a new open source model come out, it'll be sparse by default. 
this is kind of the way uh, a lot of people who have, buy a computer that comes with, let's say, something like Windows, and they have the option and the capacity to install Linux because it's leaner. It makes better use of the equipment yeah. that's on yeah. the actual device itself. Uh, whereas uh, Windows, or like ChatGPT, just has this massive thing that it tries to install when most people don't need like 90% of that, especially for uh -huh. people who are just web surfing or what have you, yeah. right? And so, and please remove my ignorance here. Would those parameters then be the data that's relevant to your specific context, whoever the retail consumer is or enterprise consumer would be, that would increase the parameters or am I misunderstanding that? It's actually the weights. So what happens is right now, if you were fine tuning it, you know, say hypothetical, you know, retailer wanted to train it so it really understood their inventory and their produce. They go through a process right now where they would modify basically every parameter. So if it's a 7 billion parameter model, you know, llama model, they would modify every parameter in their fine-tuning process. They'd still only do it in a few small number of hours. It's not a heavy, it's not a large amount of data. So, but but they'd still have a unique model with every, you know, what's called weight, every parameter in the model would be changed um, unnecessarily, right? And so with our technique, where we've already sparsified those models, they would only be modifying the subset of the parameters that were not zeros and get the oh, same wow. result. And yeah, it's just, it's we've proven this out. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. 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 And we've proven uh, this out on prior, you know, on vision and prior versions of NLP. And now we're working towards it on large language models as well. So it makes their training process efficient. And what you'll end up having as we go a level deeper and geek out is that you'll end up with just one common, you'll end up with just one common model. You'll end up with one sparse foundational model, call it, you know, Llama 7 billion, right? Um, which is a great model. Um, and then what's happened is instead of fine-tuning those parameters, you'll actually just fine-tune a couple of megabytes. And so called adapters. And um, and then you just end up with these small amount, you know, 30, 40 megabyte adapters that are the purpose-built fine-tuned versions for everything with the, with the big baseline 7 billion parameter model already sparsified being common to all of those. And then you can serve them all up simultaneously because the... The differences between the fine-tuned models is actually much smaller than than people realize it needs to be. And this is where, like, consumers could presumably have these on-device, no need to be actually oh. access to a cloud computing of and, and continuously training, continuously right. learn based on your keystrokes. You know, if you so let it to be. So, oh no, running on running on Macs are easy. Running on phones will be easy, and they'll also because of the what we just talked about adapting it's not running a big model locally it's running us a, a small model a sparse model locally with a fine-tuned adapter and you can constantly be fine-tuning 30 40 megabytes on a laptop is tiny on a phone is tiny you'll constantly be adapting that based on your persona or your interests or whatever right so think of think of what search could look like you know in this kind of new world and what industries are you currently eyeing that you'd love to innovate together with as partners to sort of really prove this out even further and massively take a huge leap for them forward and for their businesses? Yeah, I'm a, um, I'm kind of an oddity. I think just because I've always been like focused on enterprise infrastructure that I've always been very horizontal. So it's always around building capability that empowers cross industry. Um, that's been really interesting to me, even if I might gravitate to a particular industry that's more exciting. And I think where computer vision was before in NLP, it was more verticalized. Um, um, different companies have bigger problems in certain spaces, but that's changed now. Like that's with the with the notion of the large language models. We're seeing that, you know, horizontally applied across all industries. Um, I think like, um, personally, I'm just more interested in kind of the automation and the safety side. It's just kind of like where I gravitate to um, then, then help desk and writing poems. It's just me, right? And so I think <laughs> that's, um, and so like, so to me, like one of the enablements that we've done is company that's building um, a lane detection software that has to run in real time, you know, for, you know, auto safety. And like, those are like really interesting things because 
maybe it's because the consumer side of me gets to enjoy them. I still don't hit the self-driving mode button. I don't have one of those cars, but I still enjoy like anything that makes me more that eases my my ride, if you will. And 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 those kind of systems too. So that's kind of just that's more of a personal interest than a business interest. But those kinds of uh those kinds of guidance, if you will, uh are going to become more and more commonplace thanks to these models being everywhere, ubiquitous in yeah. business. So when Profit isn't looking a certain way when one customer is more expensive than the other. All these things will trigger that, hey, get back in the lane and may even adjust for you. This is what we're talking about. Yeah. Moving completely. forward with these models, accurate? Well, you know what? Like the, the, and I think why in that particular case, why it was a wide neural magic case wasn't because, again, we didn't make the model smarter. The models already knew how to do this thing. We made it easier to deploy. Um, on a lower powered device that makes more sense to put in a car, right? Then something that processing the full heavy model that was no more capable required a lot more, you know, processing, memory, power, right? More, more prone to failure, right? And so like a lot of what this lightning of the capability does is it's, you know, I don't want to overuse the word democratize, but it definitely makes it more accessible. Um, to places that, you know, in the past couldn't use it, right? And then that's that's what makes that horizontal capability to move the entire, you know, all industries forward because it's, you know, it's 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 low cost enough and it fits everywhere as opposed to you can use this thing as long as the value is high, as long as you live in these constraints. We really live in a constraint-filled world right now with AI, right? And um, And I think that even includes like the complexity of it, right? Like the you know, that compete for talent, right? We're seeing it play out, you know, and it's like compete for talent. No, like you can only do this thing if you've got the smartest people in the world. Um, that'll change, right? Not just the technology gets better, but it's going to be simpler, better understood, easier to deploy. You shouldn't have to be a an AI ML person to fine-tune a model. Today you do. Um, in the future you won't, right? In the future you'll just be a programmer, not even programming, be a Python developer, you'll be a business analyst, right? So that's what I think is really exciting about where this is all going. It's a, it does federate it because it drops the skills down and it drops the cost down and makes all the technology ubiquitous through open research and open source. I love this. If you could sort of put it on a platter or put a bow on this for people, like how could this advancement in the in the way that you're envisioning it here? Uh, with making it more accessible in that way, change the way businesses should think about their investment in AI moving forward as a tech uh, for their business and its applications. They like, how should they really be viewing this? If they haven't already gotten the context from our conversation and you had to say yeah. it explicitly, yeah, yeah, yeah. what do they need to hear? I think the I think the hardest part, actually, as much as I just kind of the way you and I kind of geeked out about it, it sounds like you know voodoo. Um, and I kind of, and I just talked about like the technical skills that you need. Um, I don't think that's the hardest part even today. I think the hardest part is, is just getting people on the applied side, you know, is really the, the art of the possible discussion, right. Around what use cases do companies, what use cases, you know, inside the company do you have, you got to own that. You got to own you know, how you're going to apply it. And it's very much a design thinking process analysis kind of discussion, right? And so, um, so you know, I think in many cases, product management, product manager led, you know, kind of art of the possible and use case discovery. And then as you do that, then you take those use cases and you score them down, right? Into a smaller set, right? And then you focus on those. But I think the companies that are going to have the most success aren't going to be the ones with the best ML engineers. They're actually going to be the ones that have the best people on the on the applied side. Wow. In that case, um, just uh, opening a little more uh, broadly here, in terms of careers that, because 
it's not always just businesses that are listening, right? Sometimes it's people who will be working for these businesses. What are some careers that people should be paying attention? Because right now everyone's clamoring to readjust and assess their uh, career trajectory, their skilling, their upskilling. Should I still learn programming? Will programming become obsolete? And I feel like no one has the kind of perspective that you currently do because you're in the midst of it all and developing uh, an alternative to many of these things and specifically for what businesses will be using. So I personally feel like you're uniquely qualified to lend weight to this discussion of like, what should people consider as careers moving forward as this change begins to continue and this democratization occurs? Yeah, I think it's, um, I'll, to my MIT um, colleagues, it won't be going back and getting your PhD. Um, <laughs> so they let me in the room with them. Um, and I think it, it's actually like just what you and I had just said is like, cause you, that would be the natural step, right? Like you think you gotta be like the world's expert, but the reality is, you know, once those people do what they got to do, right. Then, you know, that shrinks, like how many people are building operating systems today? You no, know, it shrinks. How many people are building infrastructure? It shrinks with cloud. And I think the same thing is going to happen with AI. So I think like, um, what I love about where this movement's headed is that there's such a wealth of information out there in the open on people built on the builders, um, the people that are building AI applications. Um, and it's all an open source. It's all open source frameworks. It's all the lane chain for, you know, managing all like, you know, the user interaction and prompt engineering. And so there's all these like rapidly developing capabilities that developers have at their at their disposal. And you don't have to go to school, just saying, right, to to relearn, you know, a new skill because um, through all the evangelists and the sharing that's out there, it's all written. And so like example by example, example, like every day I see 10 new blogs that come out, you know, that I that I just push into a folder and people laughing and say, we have one of those too many tabs open to people. But it's because I like, I really want to get to this thing. But like every time there's like, and the ones that I read is, sure, those are the research papers that are in a different kind of like browser window. But like the ones I really enjoy are the people, the creatives that are taking the tech that's out there, building something really cool with it, and then sharing with the world how they did it. And that's just this shared innovation at the applied side that I just think builds and builds and builds. And, you know, I think that's a lasting career that um, will have impact on the companies you work for as well as just be just fun, right? And I think in the end of the day, life's pretty short. So pick a fun career and do something that, that you really enjoy. What I really loved about the way you said that is I immediately got a vision of uh, you don't have to learn how to build a bridge because once the people learned to, once the people who know how to do that built the bridge between over the water, if you will, then what we need are people who know how to create traffic uh, directors right. and, uh, you know, whatever, artisans to craft and mold more of the design of the actual bridge to be aesthetically pleasing. Those are the things we need. And it's kind of like a startup. You have your your core team. And as you scale up to 100 and beyond, you had those people who were just all arounders and there was a certain grit they had to have of them. But then when you move to the next level, it's not the same people. You actually need specialists or people who just want to be told what to do or what have you. And so that's the kind of context you're saying we should be applying if people are thinking of career changes and what have you. It's like, think of what is going to be happening and how you can position yourself there. And the same thing with businesses. Right. Yeah, I think that's better said than 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 I than I said it. And I think well, I, just, I could only say that from listening yeah, to you is what I'm trying to say. But it's a uh, it's uh, not go off and study for three years and then get started. It's like <laughs> get started. It's to get started and continuously learn, you know, and have fun and share along the way. Right. Build in public, if you will. Right. Yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Alyssa, I, I mean, you've been so awesome and generous with your information. I want to roll out the red carpet for you. Is there anything you want to invite people to do? Visit, you know, a website, uh, look up something that you've written, a depository you want people to look, or I mean, a repository you want people to look at, you know, you want them to do oh GitHub, whatever, you know, it's all you. You know, like, like, you know, I think, you know, everybody at the company is like super passionate around like what we're building. We're all anxious because we want to go faster. 
Um, and I think like the best thing for a company like ours or you know, clearly for people to come and, and check us out, right? Number of places, all our stuff's out and um, open source and published in PyPy for easy installs. And we write, you know, DevRel blogs so we wouldn't get started and try to make it simpler. But you know what you miss the most? Um, we got a Slack community is, it's just, I love it when people give feedback and talk. Like, so yeah, come check us out, but like try it. And more than that, like you're going to get a set of insights because we're engineers and engineers like think they build beautiful, easy to use products, but it's harder <laughs> to realize. And so, so if you're kind of that practitioner and you try some of our stack and our tech or find a bug and how we like describe it in the docs, like we love feedback. And I think that's, that's the best. So if we shared something as valuable to you, then share something back. I love that. Uh, just so many things that I'm thinking about now after our discussion. I'm actually reeling. I've got energy more than lost energy, you know, and that's that's mm. a good sign that that I I think the listener will truly appreciate what we've been able to discuss here. And that's you know we didn't even dive too technical into it because that's the whole point is like the spirit yeah. of this conversation is one day it will get easier and easier to the point where you can literally answer, if you will, a type form sort of interface that will right. modulate your model for you and have it just be that personal, kind of like the movie Her, yeah. if you will, right? That's the yeah. sort of what we're heading towards. And then in you know, real time using vision and all the other models, right? I know. And there's two things that I might, I know my engineers will hate it when I say this because <laughs> they'll work towards their career. But like um, the industry's even invented new titles. You know, like like we recruit on. We go to our website. We're hiring an ML researcher. We're hiring an ML engineer. We're hiring an ML ops person. So it's ML this, ML that, ML. And it shows you like how unique this stuff is. It's kind of like everything's a snowflake kind of thing, but the reality is it shouldn't be. Like like you just want like you know your general IT department to be able to deploy this stuff, just like they deploy. I mean. We throw everything in IT, databases, network, like everything they have to run, but ML special and it has to have whole new categories of job titles around it. And so my goal, to be honest, is to obliterate these unique <laughs> titles yeah. that people have. There shouldn't be an ML engineer. Like, it should just work, right? It should just be plug and play. And and right now, though, you know, it's, it's, that's it's how people. early we are. Yeah. Yeah. It's early we are. And yeah. So I, I get it. But if it's successful, you know, it'll just be easy table stake stuff. Yeah. Well, there it is, everyone. Uh, Neural Magic, you know, and Brian Stevens and the whole team, they're, they're making it possible. And if you're running a business uh, that this hit home for you and you're looking to try it, I, I don't know if I have to, you know, urge you to do that. I, I feel like you'd feel compelled just naturally having listened to this discussion. But, uh, you know, Brian, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing, being so open with me and uh, really teaching me a lot about where the future is heading as well. Um, I feel very fortunate to have been able to speak to you at this juncture in your neural magic journey. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to see what you all do. Thank you. Really enjoyed it.